Welcome to Tub Talks. I'm Jean-Viev. I grew up learning the most through conversations in the hot springs with everyone from close family to complete strangers in the tubs at Esalen and Big Sur. There's a special kind of intimacy that's created when people strip down and share freely in the bath. On Tub Talks, we will soak in the wisdom and creativity offered from friends in all walks of life and relax into the process of growth together. In the ways that soaking becomes a deeper relaxation over time, freeform conversation allows for us to undress our insecurities and share our process and lifestyle in true authenticity. So, hello from my tiny clawfoot bath under an oak tree. Let's get into today's episode. On this week's episode, I soak in with someone special, my mother, Deborah Meadow. We discuss her lifelong relationship with Esalen Institute and the ways that she finds joy through her 73 years in this body on this earth. Welcome, Deborah. Welcome to Tub Talks. This is an interview that we do about creativity with different minds and different people. And today we are interviewing my mom, Deborah Meadow. Um, hi, mom. Hi. Thanks for coming. Thanks for inviting me. You didn't know you were doing this today, right? I did not. <laughs> Another surprise from my lovely daughter. Um, so part of why I wanted to interview you is because you've had such an intrinsically creative life. And I think that where I wanted to start was maybe if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background and where you come from. Well, um, I was born in South Bend, Indiana, and I had my first years there. And then eventually... I left school a little early and got married and had a child and I graduated with my class. Then I had a few years of college and then I was doing very well in school but I wasn't, I didn't know what I was doing and my parents had heard of this place called Esalen Institute and they offered to send me there for a workshop. So I left my two-year-old daughter with them and I went to Esalen And I actually, was the first time I'd been to California. I flew to Monterey. I hitchhiked from Monterey to Big Sur, and I caught a ride with some lovely people in a white van, Volkswagen bus. And we stopped along the way, and I fell in love with the coast. And when I walked down the hill to Esalen, I felt like I had come home. What year was that? It was either 68 or 69. I'm never sure which year. How old were you? I was 19 or 20. So after I was there for a week, I got offered a job. Things were very different then. So I flew back to Indiana and I got my daughter and we flew back to California, hitchhiked again and came to Esalen. What was Esalen at the time? Esalen was like a very exciting creative place. There were brilliant minds meeting there um, and they had developed a 
They were just developing the Esalen massage to kind of blend Eastern and Western in a bodywork way because the minds that were meeting there were blending Eastern and Western minds talking with each other and uh, philosophies. And so we had massage going. And while I was there, I took a workshop and in massage movement and yoga, and that totally changed my life. So then I intensely dove into learning yoga, and I had a teacher named Joel Kramer, and my massage teacher was Gabrielle Roth. They taught this workshop together, and I was still working in the kitchen, and eventually that fell away, and I ended up doing like four hours of yoga a day, not because I decided to do it, but because I was inspired to do it. It just kind of happened. And I uh, stopped working in the kitchen and I was also learning massage and learning massage and learning yoga at the same time really taught me so much about bodies and my body and bodies that I was working with. So it, and also there was all these, these other things happening at Esalen at the time. And so it was a very creative time to be there there were times when we had uh, several people meeting with Dick Price, a co-founder, and Seymour Carter, and John Hyder, and a few other people, and we would do bodywork together, sometimes very intense, and that was exciting. We never knew what was going to happen in those sessions. What do you mean you were doing bodywork, like massage or gestalt? And, and if so, like, can you describe what it is those practices are? Because a lot of our listeners don't necessarily know... So there were, there was a bit of gestalt in there where um, you try to look at more of a fuller picture of what's going on from different perspectives, but it wasn't as much gestalt happening but what in those is, sessions. What is gestalt therapy? Because a lot, a lot of people don't actually know. Gestalt itself, it comes from a German word and it is about getting a fuller perspective. So. In a gestalt session, many different things can happen. You can work with a dream, you can work with... Um, it starts from coming from a grounded, centered, meditative place in breath. And from there, you move to other things. For instance, if a dream was being worked on, then I might become different aspects of my dream and speak from that place. If I were working on an issue with my mother, then I might speak to my mother, and then I might trade positions and speak as if I were my mother talking back to myself so that I get a broader perspective. This is really um, a brief explanation of Gestalt and right. not going into any depth. But in this context of when we were working with each other in a bodywork way, sometimes we would be doing deep bodywork, um, rolfing basically, and uh, Sometimes people would go into different places and also work in a gestalt way with the places that they were encountering inside themselves. Is I actually don't know exactly what rolfing is. When people ask me, I, I say that it's, I can't remember if it's the skeletal sc structure or the muscular structure. Can you? So rolfing was <laughs> developed by Ida Rolf. Yeah. And she had a system of working a basic 10 session she started off with but that eventually changed a little bit especially as different people learned and 
learn more about the body. But there are a basic 10 sessions that people do, and then they do advanced sessions. But the first 10 address the, the skeletal and a little bit of the, and the muscular. But I'm not a rolfer, although I did learn deep tissue work with Al Drucker. Right. So when you guys were doing the deep tissue work, you were doing it with Gestalt, or you you were playing around with it? Um, in the what we called Rolf Monster, I wasn't going to use that term, but that's what we called those sessions. Rolf we were Monster. Using, we were using deep, deeper body work, not Perry's deep body work, but Rolfing sessions, and and. Um, some massage and whatever felt right in the moment. So we weren't hooked into any particular thing. It was very creative. It was about learning how to listen what was going on with the person we were working with and what was coming through them and then kind of dancing with that and moving into whatever felt right in terms of both reflecting back to them as they do in Gestalt. It is a reflection process and also in doing body work to help um, move through places that were um, constrained or holding emotion or whatever. And that happens in both rolfing and any kind of body work. When an area gets addressed, sometimes there are underlying emotions that are trapped in the body or in the tissue or in the muscles, that, the tissues that make up the muscles. And by allowing that to come through, whatever the emotion is or whatever the stored memory is, then a person is able to relax a bit, little bit into their own body in a different way. I think that's really interesting to think about using or experiencing massage as a creative process because a lot of people just get a massage and want to be fixed, but you're talking about it more as a process of exploration. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because it is, yes, we can learn Esalen massage or many different kinds of styles of massage that have a protocol that you do this and do that and do this. Esalen's a little broader. There are definitely long strokes. There are the idea of working with someone instead of on someone and the knowledge that I might be affecting somebody on more than the physical, the mental, the emotional, or even the spiritual. And of course, there are those long integrating strokes that help somebody drop into a deeper place. But the other thing is if a, a practitioner is bringing a full-hearted, full-bodied presence to what they're doing, that really allows somebody to drop in more deeply, and it allows the practitioner to really begin to follow the tissue and their intuition. If somebody has been working a long time, um, hopefully they're a little more attuned to bodies and, and to people in general, and are then able to use that knowledge to help sense what's going on with someone and work with them or play with the tissue. Um, I really like working with people who have, let's say, a frozen shoulder because we can explore the way the shoulder moves and doesn't move and listen to the tissue. Sometimes there'll be verbal things, maybe some old memory is caught in there or not, but then that helps the um, tissue relax and the person let go of whatever was trapped in there and then there's more movement there's more freedom of movement and it's a dance of exploring the movement exploring what's coming through and playing with the tissue instead of working with it in body work in my opinion there are too many people who try to 
push people through to let go. And that's not how to, for me, that's not the way. The way is to help somebody come to play with and explore something and move through in that way. I think that it's going to be a longer lasting change in the movement and in the way the person develops than if I force a change. Forcing change, forcing movement can create more stress in the body and more stress in the psyche because it's all related. Do you think that you naturally came to that understanding of bodywork because you guys explored bodywork in a more open way? There wasn't a means to an end, but it seems like it's always been a process of continual learning. I think that that's part of it. I think that the background of being in a certain way raised at Esalen from my late teen years and exploring uh, different ways of thinking, different philosophies, and then also doing bodywork definitely opened me up to sensing in a different way and to feeling in a different way. And I hope that happens for other people. I know that the other thing that's so important is to realize there's always more to learn, whether it's about bodywork or about gestalt or philosophy, there's always more to learn. And that openness to learning allows an exploration and a sensitivity to developing so many more different ways of working and touching and being with people. Yeah, that seems to make sense to me. I feel like it's one of the things I noticed about you and my dad growing up is I used to, people would ask me what it's like to grow up at Esalen and I would often say, oh, it's a Neverland for adults. You never really grow up here. And my sense of that was like this arrested development almost, but in a sense, that's also the idea of everyone's always exploring something new, whether my dad was still taking Heller work classes or you were teaching those experiences or even taking like Al Huang's Tai Chi workshop, you continued educating yourself. Is that one of the things that you enjoyed about being at Esalen this whole time? There are several things that I enjoyed about being at Esalen, and for sure one of it was that there were these workshops offered and I could continue to explore and grow inside myself and outside myself. I also loved working with the different people who came through and helping them move through different places in themselves and maybe giving them a sense of something new they can do or another way of being or just a deeper sense of themselves, which is so important. But I don't think any of that could have happened without the power of that land. Um, that land and the magical nature that surrounds Esalen, the power of the earth, is a ground, a literal ground, for so much else to develop. And that's why Dick and Michael chose that land, because it is so powerful, and Michael's family had been on that land. But it definitely gives a ground from which to explore, and everybody needs a base from which to move out on, and then come back and ground again. And so when you said arrested development, that caught my attention, because Yes, people can get caught in thinking the only way to move them through something is to do gestalt process work. And that's getting, that's what I would call arrested development. But there's also a way to use that as a tool to move through into other things and other ways, whether it's gestalt or bodywork. So it's important to keep that sense of 
wonder and creativity alive inside. How do you do that? By exploring. Well, yeah, I'm just thinking about the little celeries that are here in, in this picture. I am getting so much joy these days out of sprouting celery out of a regular celery stalk, cutting off the bottom and putting it in water and, and watching it grow. And that's creativity to me. That is the earth creating. So I think keeping creativity alive has to do somewhat with keeping a sense of a child inside. I wouldn't call that arrested development, but I would call it keeping a sense of wonder. I'm very much enjoying playing with some of my little young friends these days because I'm willing to drop down into their young playfulness and play with them and laugh. Laughing is so important for all of us. It helps our tissue heal. Uh, it helps our minds heal. There are people who have healed themselves through laughing. And I think that's really important. So somehow with creativity, some youth, and also um, the wisdom of people who have had lots of experiences and can share some of what they've learned through the years from their experiences. Creativity stays alive by keeping my sense of wonder alive and my appreciation of nature. And um, for me, I also have to be on the land and walk a lot and appreciate the stars and the sun and the moon and the changes that happen as we move through the seasons. It all feeds me inside so that I can have more space for creativity. I'm thinking about that airplane that's flying by. Yeah, because... Why? Because the airplane's flying by, and one of the things that happens for me is I also have... Um, little things that happen like an airplane flying by that starts to get my mind moving and I want to make a little story of a child about the airplane going by and who's in the airplane and uh, something. I, uh, so what I'm trying to say is to use whatever it is that comes into the field as a source for wonder and possibly an ability to do something creative, whether it's write a story or tell a story to a child. So I think that the idea is that you can find creativity in everything you do, and that's a recipe for happiness, or...? It's a recipe for growth, some happiness, and um, staying alive. Staying alive and, and young at heart. And that's so important to keep a sense of freshness in our lives. Is that something that you've started thinking about more as you're getting older. I mean, you had me when you were 42, so I feel like maybe that was another way of staying young. <laughs> well, that wasn't how I thought about it at the time, but I guess that is another way of staying young. Certainly, um, I thought I was bringing more experience to mothering, having had my first child 25 and a half years um, earlier, and it definitely did keep me younger to be with you and have experiences with you. I don't know, but that's not why I had you. <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking about it, like you had two different or a few different chapters at SLN. 
Definitely. And can you describe the chapter in like a little way about how creativity fit into your life when Ricky was a kid versus when I was a kid? So this this 60s, 70s, 80s versus 90s, early 2000s. So how creativity came in, when I first came to Esalen, things were, um, I would say that right now, or in the past years, Esalen has become a little more middle class and stayed and um, abiding by certain rules. We did have rules then, but mostly people were just exploring. Everybody was exploring, and sometimes it was wild and crazy, but it gave space for being very creative in different ways. Our barn was a mess, but also wild and and um, a place where people could create things. And with Ricky, children weren't encouraged to be there at that point in time. And then when Dick had his first child, then Gazebo eventually was born. Ricky actually worked there at first. And, and Gazebo is the preschool. Gazebo is the preschool at Esalen. Forgive me for jumping. And uh, that was a, a very creative thing in itself, the gazebo that Janet Letterman um, developed with the help of other people. And the children then could go there, and so Esalen had a children's school that was very creative. People going to their workshops would walk by that school and be inspired by um, the outside nature and how children were doing because there weren't forest schools at that point in time. It was all outdoor, right? It was an outdoor school. There was a farmhouse that sometimes was used in inclement weather. Um, and also, people were just exploring more. Esalen Massage itself was developing. It continues to develop, and, and it was developing then. And, of course, there were some people who came to Esalen who were working with their philosophical minds, and then we had great bodywork people like um, Feldenkrais and Ida Rolf and Milton Traeger and even Pierre Panettiere for Dr. Stone's work, different kinds of bodywork work. It was drawing, Esalen was drawing so many of the innovative things and there weren't that many centers around at that point in time. So there was a space that just sparked creativity. Then eventually that gradually um, changed and got a little quieter and and uh, the workshops were more monitored in a certain way. And when I had you, that was 25 years later. So that's 23, basically, years later of me being at Esalen. And the gazebo school was well-developed, and you were going there. And Janet also wasn't alive by the time I was going there, so that probably shifted. It shifted the way the school was working. Some people were happy with that. Some people weren't. How was it shifted? It just was a little more uh, regulated. What and was the philosophy before? Like, I mean, I remember running around naked, so it doesn't feel like that was regulated. Um, the, some of it's still the same. Like, they still have a park school now. There was a, the idea of being a tree and not interfering in children's interactions, but observing and only coming in when needed like if there was an argument let the children work it out unless it gets moves to a place where an adult needs to come in and referee um, more of a gestalt way of helping the children learn 
to see a broader perspective than their own little space. But I think that continued a little bit with you, didn't it? Yeah, there were trees up until actually even Malachi was a tree at one point, so that was way after I was a kid. Yeah, and there were still, there still, they talk about trees in the park school. However, it is, it's just more regulated, and they had to get more regulated to meet the regulations of the state. Um, but sometimes regulations have to make people have to work harder to be creative. Right. And so that happened. Doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that people have to work a little harder to to find that way to be creative. Do you think that that's true of Esalen overall? Because in my experience, even of growing up there, things changed a lot from the time I was a little girl to being an adult and now I can't even go (laughs) but I mean it's a whole process well of course it's changed right now because of everything that's happening with COVID and closing and opening but yes over the years it definitely has changed and some people will say oh I miss the old Esalen and but no but Esalen has always been a developing place and hopefully it will bring back that sense of community which seems to have gotten a little lost in some of the things that have happened in the past years because that community is also a base for Esalen to um, do its operations and the power of a community is very important in in allowing people who come there who like to keep coming back to have something to come back to and yet there needs to be youth and development. It's working right now on becoming a community again, and I hope that it's successful. Do you feel that that's something that's important to you? Like, why did you never leave? I stayed at Esalen because I loved the land and because I loved helping the people who came through find a different way to go back into their lives get a little more comfortable or a little more inspired or both to go back into the world and to do whatever they wanted to do and sometimes that was a new idea of what they wanted to do and sometimes it was a re-inspiration of moving back into their lives and giving them some tools to work with and when I taught massage it's not just about learning how to give a massage it's really about learning how to be present with people in a very deep and non-judgmental way and then encouraging um, a change perhaps with or at least an acceptance of what is so that change can happen so um, I stayed because of the land because of the people that come through there because some of the people that I love who still work there and also the spirit that infuses the land and what happens there. There's a powerful earth there. I love that earth. I like to shake a rattle and listen and see what comes through me. Do you feel um, that the creative energy changes as people have come and left or passed away, that pieces of the land go with it, or is there? All of the above. (laughs) All of those things happen. Some people leave and there's a hole. When Dick left, it was so hard for us to adjust to his going. It was so unexpected. Um, Who is Dick? Dick Price was a co-founder of Esalen Institute. He was a complicated man. 
he was a, a bright spirit and also he had his dark places. He changed the nature of the way Gestalt work was done at Esalen and he affected very many of us and he was wonderful with people who were on the edges of their spiritual, psychological development and sometimes in a difficult dark place. He could help them. Sometimes he would just take them hiking or put them to work in the garden so they were in the earth. He was wonderful at that. He also had his demons that he worked with and that he struggled with um, and he was a wonderful man and when he died so quickly and unexpectedly it was difficult for Esalen to adjust because he was on the ground. Michael Murphy, the co-founder, he was more in um, San Francisco and less on the ground of Esalen itself at that time. So it took a while for Esalen to find out who it was going to become after Dick left. When was that? I think it was 85, I believe, or 85 or 86. The strange thing is my mom died some months after that. And it was for me like having two earthquakes in my life because Dick was a ground for me and so was my mom. So it was interesting to me that they died, you know, five or six, November, December, a few months apart. I've heard you say that Dick is the the person that has done the most therapeutic work with you, too, in terms of Gestalt therapy. He was. He, yeah, he is. I did some work with John Heider, but, and a little bit with Seymour, but Dick was pivotal for me. Can you talk a little bit about what that process is, was for you? like things that he helped you reshape in yourself? He just helped me find a sense of um, of finding home in myself through breath and and also a different way of looking at things through his way of doing gestalt work. It helped me feel myself in a different way and also pay attention to my breath and when I'm in an experience be in the experience more fully, but that also gets tied in with the body work too, so it's hard to separate. But he started me on my path. Did you, because I also know Seymour was a, a big figure in my life, and you guys actually dated before I was born, he told me that. Yes. Um, did. did you work with him when you guys were dating, or no? A little bit, but he actually rolfed your sister. No, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, he gave Ricky her first, maybe he did three rolfings with her. And um, so he had a relationship with your sister, too. It's pretty cool that he had relationships with both of you. And yes, um, Seymour and John were best friends, and um, we spent a lot of time hanging out with each other. And then when I was very involved with Native America tradition for a while, they sat together in one of the circles we did where Brian and I were in the circle and kind of co-leading it and Seymour and John were participating. It was really interesting. It was like full circle in some way. Oh, were you also hanging out with John? John and I were good friends, as were Seymour and I. (laughs) 
Not all together at the same time, but we were definitely good friends. What was that like dating at Esalen? Like, I, I, I've heard Seymour's interview with Ken where he talks about how he tried polyamory. It was probably the same situation and how it doesn't really work in the end. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't. Do, they were best friends. I loved both of them, but I couldn't continue relating. But also part of it was because they were both smokers and I couldn't stand smoke. <laughs> Do you feel like relationships were something that was a creative undertaking or like an educational aspect of being at Esalen too? Definitely people were exploring relationships and how to be in relationship and, and dating one person or dating a couple people. Um, there were other kinds of explorations, I think, going on that I wasn't involved in and wasn't interested in, but definitely um, people were exploring themselves and part of exploring themselves was exploring who and how they were in relationship and this was in the 70s right because definitely not when I was there late 60s early 70s late 60s because I was already out of that by 71 and what was it like being in I remember the the social group out on a limb can you explain what out on a limb was out on a limb was great fun and such a creative way for some of us to be together. There were, I think, six of us. Leah, who was in the head of gazebo at the time, and um, Perry Halloween, and Benj Langdon, who at one point in time was a general manager of Esalen, but he was a Feldenkrais and bodywork practitioner. Um, And a great dancer. And Martha Clark, also a wonderful dancer, and uh, worked with uh, Gabrielle Roth a lot. And Steve Harper, who leads now, he is very much involved with the Gestalt, closer to the way that Dick does Gestalt work. And Steve is also into taking people out into nature. He's very good at doing that. And myself, and sometimes Ricky, but Ricky was more, would bring, um, bring stuff to us. Like one time we... Dick liked us. We were so creative and we started off doing a lot of how it happened was we were doing a lot of contact improv together. Contact improv is a way of dancing where you you are in contact with each other but that point of contact keeps moving and so the way you're connected keeps moving and it forces one to be right in the moment because you can't do it if you're not in the moment and so we started doing a lot of contact improv with each other and then from that we decided to do some other things some of them were a statement about what was happening on at Esalen in the moment so they were sometimes a little bit controversial we pied a couple people um one time I didn't know that was what you were gonna say (laughs) and it wasn't uh (laughs) It was hysterical, but it wasn't well received by the people receiving. Where was the it? In the kitchen? In no, the it was office? in the lodge. It was in the lodge, and right after the two people got pied, um, a couple other people ran through the lodge with this banner that said "Out on a Limb." That was a little controversial, but it definitely got people interested. And then, one time we did something for the Fourth of July, where Steve was up there with stilts. We actually had an Out on a Limb. Um, it was in a brochure. It was the five of us up in a tree. That tree no longer exists. It was right in front of the lodge. And Dick, where I started with this, is Dick let us book the little, the uh, big house one time, the Murphy house now. And we 
this was before fences and we're all around Esalen and the five of us or six of us blindfolded ourselves and wore earplugs and Dick was living in the little house and he I don't know how we did this we walked down to the pond we were blindfolded we did all kinds of things and then the second night we were there on the Saturday night Dick came over so we all took out our earplugs and we talked with Dick but we were still blindfolded we did some great dancing in there with blindfolds on. I remember somehow the blindfold moving and I found myself under a table doing contact improv with, with Benj. And, but we were exploring. We were exploring how to be in the world without certain senses. And that was really interesting. And the, thing, the amazing thing was nobody got injured. Nobody fell off a cliff. I wouldn't recommend this anymore, but we were fully present with all of our senses that were available in the moment. That's really interesting to me because obviously what I'm doing is really built on sensory experiences. So do you, what were some of the things that you learned from pulling away cer other, certain sense, sen senses? Did it activate other senses? Of course, and I actually use that a lot when I work with people in massage. Sometimes we do blindfold massage. Um, because, of course, the senses are, all the other senses get magnified because you no longer have the eyesight, which is normally the first thing people who can see, they're often, the sight is a, distracts them from the power of the other senses. So once the eyes are blindfolded, then the hands are more sensitive, other parts of the body are more sensitive. The nose, the scent is more sensitive. It's really interesting how hearing is magnified. So I do blind walk with people when I'm teaching them, even if it's not massages. If it, I used to teach experiencing Esalen workshops, which I love teaching because it was so fun to, to take people who were not so experienced with these things and give them a new experience that helps them go, wow, I didn't realize I could do that. Or look what I can see and what I can hear and feel without my eyes. So it just is really fun to help people experience things in a different way. And Out on a Limb definitely helped us experience things in a different way and helped us isolate different senses and then magnify the others. Secular Sabbath was created as a reclamation of the day of rest, as a way for people to tap into their sensory selves through ambient music-centered experiences. Now, we've brought the community together online through our membership, The Inner Circle. Membership unlocks event tickets, musical artifacts, secret artist-curated playlists, member discounts, a community group, and more. In becoming a member, you're joining a community that's committed to sensory awareness, expansion, shared joy, and simply being. To become a member, check out the link in our show notes.
I obviously wasn't alive during Out on a Limb, but I have memories of you getting your entire massage class naked and covering their bodies in mud and running through the lodges. That <laughs> from not, Out on a Limb? It was not Out on a Limb. It was a workshop where Cece and I were teaching, and Jason Fan had was active in the art barn, and he had taken a big bucket of mud and left it at the baths. So... We were taking our final bath as a group, and there was the mud, and we decided to paint ourselves with the mud. So we painted ourselves with the mud, and then we decided you could never do this now because nudity isn't allowed, but we were covered in mud. And we we went all the way up from the baths, and we went up in through the lodge, through the kitchen, and we went around in the, in the office. It was a different configuration then. And... It was so much fun, and there was another massage group happening at the time, and they were up in Porter's, and we surrounded Porter's Yurt. We had so much fun, and the people who saw us were like, they were so happy to see us playing in this (laughs) crazy way, and then we went back down to the bios and took our clothes, uh, took our mud off. You were a little resistant as a child. You you can't go up there like that. But we did it, and everybody loved it, and it was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, you can't do things like that anymore there. And that was one of the beautiful things that was allowed. There was a little more space to be more wildly creative in that day and age. Do you miss that? I totally miss that. And I'm debating whether to share an experience, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. So in the last few years, I had one workshop at Esalen, and we were down at the Baths, and we we were coming up from the baths and it was evening, it was nighttime, and we decided to have a dance in the lodge, actually in the bar area. And this was a new configuration. So we were all in the bar area dancing, not all of us, but a group of us. And some other people came into the bar and they were dancing. And then two people in the group took off their clothes and they were dancing. Nobody cared. It was so not sexual. It was really fun. And then... Um, Eventually, they put on their clothes, and the dancing ended. And the next day, I was addressed for my group having a nude dance party, which was totally not what happened. One person had said something to somebody else who wasn't there and said, oh, there was a nude dance party. So then I got questioned about the nude dance party. And I said, there wasn't a nude dance party. There were two people who were nudely dancing, but there was nothing sexual about it. And the storyline was, well, you can't have a nude dancing in the bar, any nude dancing, because it's a public area. But I thought it was a private place. Esalen's a private place. But we were told not to do that. I never said who the nude dancers were, because I didn't want anyone to get in trouble. And besides, everybody who was there loved it. The person who complained wasn't there. Do you think that we're moving as a society to a more puritanical place and that's impacting Esalen as well? Yes, and that's... uh, Yes, we are. And it's really hard to find the balance. And Esalen has a challenge in front of them to allow creativity and yet follow general rules. And we as a society have the same challenge in front of us. 
and all places right now are having to figure out how to deal with these things and not not be a staunch line to be flexible and it's very difficult to get to the bottom of what's true and I think Esalen has gone way to one side because they're afraid of the publicity and because that's what the world is doing but Esalen will need to find another way because Esalen supposedly is in the past has been the front line of change and if that is so then they will have to find the humane creative way to deal with many different kinds of issues that's a big thing yeah i feel like that's one of the things that that made me really sad is is feeling like esalen has historically been such a leader of change and following the human mind as it expands but I'm wondering how it's still expanding your mind as someone who has been there this whole time. You're 73 now. Am I'm I wrong? 73. And you got there when you were 19. 19 so, or 20, yes. And what what is it for you now? I don't know. I'm finding out. For the changes that have been going on during COVID, etc., I felt like the soul of Esalen was missing. That was what I came up with. Then later on, I decided, oh, maybe the soul of Esalen is hibernating in the land because the soul is there. And then when I came back on Father's Day and there was a little celebration going and somebody had complimentary guested me, so I didn't have to pay to go there just for the day, I met with the new CEO, Camille, and I had a lot of hope because she was definitely interested in bringing community back in addition to bringing business back. Then I just was there um, last Sunday, I think it was, and I see that the new people that are there, they're excited about being there. Esalen is figuring it out. I don't know what my involvement will be because I didn't want to care, but I still do. I love that land. I care that it still be a place for people to come and heal themselves and find new ways to be in their world and in this world. And that means that Esalen has to grow and develop too. And it's figuring it out right now. It's figuring it out financially because it was hit so hard with all the COVID stuff. And it has to figure it out philosophically and with the people that are there and the people who have been there. I'm probably going to go back in some way. I definitely want to teach. I may come back and practition, but part of why is because I care and I want to help in whatever way I can. I didn't want to care, but I still do because of the possibility for helping people change. And you still think Esalen is at the forefront of that? I don't know if it's at the forefront. I think it has a possibility of being there but it's going to take some work. Do you feel like you could find the creativity in yourself to help Esalen find creative solutions to this new world that we're living in? I hope so. I really hope so. Um, so I guess one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, because we've talked a lot about Esalen, but what... what it, is it so interesting about you is also your routine at Esalen and in life, but can you talk a little bit about your daily routine? 
you're going to expose my late night meanderings. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Somehow, after having children and having to get up really early, I have turned into a night bird. So I love the night because I can do things in the night. It's quieter and I like walking at night, like where I live right now. If COVID hadn't happened, I never would have been walking as much as I do now. And so I walk at night and I'm on a ridge where there's an area that is safe enough for me to walk and I don't worry about mountain lions or things because I'm being careful. Knock on the tub. And I love being up at night. So it's also when I'm most creative. I spend lots of time at night, sometimes reading, sometimes exercising, walking and looking at the stars. And it has been so wonderful to watch the seasons um, and how the stars and the position in the sky changes with the seasons. I never would have realized that to the extent I do now. And also I'm starting to identify planets and stars and I really like doing that. And uh, the problem is I also like early morning, but these days I've been getting up a little bit later and I only get like three or four, sometimes five hours of sleep um, because I don't really need it. At least I don't think I do. And so my day starts a little bit in mid to late morning. And then you want my whole day? Yeah. <laughs> I always start off a day with lemon water to help cleanse my system. And then I shower or don't shower, depending. And the other thing I do that I didn't say is I always shower before I go to bed. <laughs> I want to go to bed clean. I want to get into relatively clean sheets. And by showering before I go to bed, I think I do that. Plus, I wash off the day. I wash off whatever happened during the day that worked and didn't work. So whether I'm doing massage or whatever, I like to clean off at the end of the day. Um, then during the day lately, because I'm not doing body work so much, often I'll um, spend time with plants or with walking with friends and then doing some reading. And um, I also started going through a whole bunch of things and donating stuff because I had too many leggings, for instance, and so I wanted to get rid of them. Do you, when you walk with your friends, is it different than when you used to spend time at Esalen together? Because most of the friends you walk with are friends that you've made over the many years you guys spent together on Esalen property. Not totally. I actually have one friend that I've spent, that I walk with, that I've spent a lot of time with at Esalen and, and Margaret, and we used to go to the gym a lot together too. But, and now we're walking and hiking. And actually, even when I was at Esalen, we would go hiking. Margaret and I. Um, and so we still do, but now there are other friends that I hike with that I didn't before. And we walk, hike. Um, I am always usually the one who wants the more vigorous hike. Just do, because um, I like moving, and moving is central to my day. I have to move in my day or I'm unhappy. I have to exercise. During COVID, I actually got an elliptical it's a junky elliptical, but it's an elliptical, and I have it in my one-room studio, <laughs> along with a stationary bike. 
that I got. So I definitely have to be moving. I prefer to move outside than inside. So are you saying that you live in a one-room studio reminds me of how our house burned down in 2014? 13. 13, but it was December. December 2013, the house burned down. And December 16. Do you feel like there was a creativity that was born out of that? Or have you seen anything from that? I guess maybe talk about the process a little bit because not a lot of people have experienced it, but yet a lot of people in California lately have. Yeah. So what I learned, because I've had two houses burned down now in Big Sur, one by somebody's... Um, mistake of and the other by the forest fire um and two homes that you were currently living in yeah and this last home i lived in for 23 and a half years i think what i've learned is that stuff even though i tend to collect stuff stuff doesn't matter what's really important especially if a house is burning is to grab photos if you can grab the important papers and get out alive um, and be happy that your children and whoever else is with you gets out alive. And that the physical, material possessions, they really don't matter. Even in the end, the photos don't matter because they're inside, they're inside me. So I don't know, I get, I'm getting emotional around this. After the last house burned and you and I were looking for my mom's ring outside in the ashes and we couldn't find the ring and I said something about the mouse that I was trying to get to leave the house and I said, well, I guess the mouse is gone and then I looked over <laughs> where the fireplace used to be and a mouse came out and it was so ridiculous. The mouse survived. I don't know what that has to do with the story, except that that was pretty funny. What I have discovered is that the physical and material things don't matter as much as we think they do. It's nice to have them. Look, I'm in a one-room studio right now. I really would like to be in a house with a full kitchen. But you know what else? I'm in an area where I can walk at night, and that's great. So a few things about having a house burned down is let go of the possessions that don't matter, in the long run and be thankful for what I have and try to see the positive in, in what happened. I got rid of a bunch of stuff. It's not the way I would have chosen to, but it's gone. I'm really sorry about the writings of you and me that got lost and a few things that got lost in the fire. But then the other day, oh, last year when I came here, when it was fire around Big Sur and I brought a few things with me that I didn't want to lose and you said mom did you bring that and you didn't even have to say what it was because it was this one figurine that you had made that survived the snowman the snowman that survived the fire even kept its color and I had brought it and so it's nice to have a couple things and life goes by really quickly People die in a moment unexpectedly. What's important is the people, not the stuff that surrounds them. Do you feel like you come into contact with that more and more as, as the people of your generation go? Wow, it's hard to think about that. And now I'm there, I'm that age, because I never, I don't think of myself as, 
as old, and I am. I'm 73, but I don't feel 70. What does 73 mean? Does it mean people don't, men don't turn their heads to look at me anymore? Does it mean I could die in a moment? I could die in a moment in a car accident when I was 12. I mean, it's the moment to moment that's important. It's valuing each moment. That's what you learn in Gestalt. It's what you learn in whatever we're doing is this moment is what matters. This moment of me and you talking right now in a tub with bathing suits on, this is what matters. I love you dearly. You're what matters to me. Oh, thanks, Mom. Yeah, and to have moments like this, that's what's most important. Yeah, I think so too. And also when we when the house burned down, for me, it was really important to have that creative process of, of making a project out of it and oh, doing right. the installation at my college at the time and having a video that I can look back at and I don't think it's my best music video but I think that it's a video that means the most to me because it captures a time just as this will capture a time and and I think that's kind of what moments are about you know I still haven't looked at the video because I wanted to do it with you and I realize that that is true with me about things that matter a lot. There was a um, a podcast that was done with me at Esalen, and I still haven't looked at the whole podcast because I was so I wasn't at Esalen, and Dick used to say, "You're going to be there forever," and something about that made me not be able to watch that podcast. Maybe now I can. Why did Dick say that you would be there forever? <laughs> I don't know why. We were in a manager's meeting and I happened to be there. Um, I was the community rep at the time and I was representing the community to the managers because at different times we had that position. And it's, I don't know what was going on because Dick used to say that Esalen was a bus stop. People to come and to learn something and then to go out in the world and spread it. And, and for some reason he said, you're Deborah, she's going to be there forever. And that was funny to me. But somehow having that in the podcast that was done with me, I just couldn't watch it because I got to the point where I told that story and then I couldn't watch the rest of it because it was, I was in too much pain around Esalen at the time. That makes sense to me. And now I'm in a different perspective and so it's, I can watch it now. And I want to watch that other thing with you. There's one more thing I wanted to mention. I just came back from being with my family um, because my sister-in-law died and some of us met in Michigan. And that was also really valuable to see family, especially after my sister-in-law having died and also to connect with people I've never connected that deeply before with certain ones of my nieces and nephews. So it's not, it's, it's the moment of connecting with people in a heartful, meaningful way. That is so much more important than the clothes I'm wearing or not wearing. And connecting isn't linear. No, but what do you mean when you say that? When you're connecting with them some of my cousins, per se, you're connecting with them in the moment of now at 73. And that is different than if you were connecting with them 20 years ago, even. 
Yes, definitely. And also, they're connecting with me in a different place than they were at that time. And that's being in the moment. We connect with people. We do have that history. We have history, you and I. But we still can connect with each other in the moment and let some of that history go. And some of the time, that's still going to influence the way we look. And for me, the way we see each other. For me, the best is when I can really be so present that I'm just in the moment. Do you feel, because sometimes I, I feel you look at me and you wish I was still three, or you wish I was still two, because sometimes you'll even say that. Do you feel that often with other people in your life, maybe not your children, but, but you miss them at a certain time in their life? Um... Not really, although I'm watching one of my young friends, Asher, grow, and I so love how he is right now, and then I'm watching him grow out of that, and I don't want him to lose that preciousness, but he's going to move into another preciousness. So, yes, there's a nostalgia that happens. Yes, I miss the three-year-old you, or the you that painted yourself in with finger paints and I came up and there you were all colored in paint and I was worried about what the paint was going to do to your body and then I had to shift my head so I could appreciate what creativity it had taken you to paint yourself like that. I <laughs> so, remember that day. <laughs> so yes, um, to value the moment that was and also appreciate even more the moment that is. That's, I love that. Yeah. Both things are important. I think and I so appreciate you and who you are and how you are right now and how you keep growing and developing and what you're doing with Secular Sabbath. Thanks, Mom. It's pretty special that you are doing what I like to do, which is to help people come out of their electronics or whatever it is and come into a fuller sense of themselves. What else are we here for except to help each other be more fully who we can be? That's why we're here. Thanks, Mom. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thanks me for too. doing this with me. Thank you. I love you. I love you, too. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. To get updates from Secular Sabbath on upcoming sensory experiences, follow us at Secular Sabbath. Let's get activated together. <laughs>